Last Sunday uh, caused more of a buzz than I thought it would, um, which gave me some consideration. Uh, I was going to talk about something slightly different this morning, but I think I'm just going to continue in the same vein as last Sunday. Uh, I was surprised, quite honestly. Um, But we're going to stick with the, the topic or the conversation of what does it mean to grow up from a child into an adult. And we're going to try to, uh, so last week I joked about how all I I felt like I was doing was blowing it up, um, and I'm sorry. We're going to try to put a few pieces together today, uh, kind of examine what is a a right way to to transition a child to an adult in a family setting. If you're a child, uh, you participate in this this venture. Um, You need to be asking for yourself. Um, How do you appropriately incorporate yourself into the family as you transition from child to an adult because God wants to use you? So along these lines, I've been thinking, so how is it that I became an adult? And not that that is the right way necessarily, but I can say one benchmark as far as my adulthood, my manhood, was basic training. Um, Basic training advertises their ability to turn a boy into a man. That's what they talk about. You certainly find out, find out when you get there that you're a boy. They tell you uh, in a lot of ways. And then they describe for you the next two months uh, of your path towards manhood. Now, um, so there, there's a lot of... The, and you don't have to go to basic training to know this. You can just watch some old army movie and this kind of idea of we're going to make a man out of you. We're going to put hair on your chest. We're going to, you know, come on over here, Sally. It's kind of this... This rough and tumble, we would do push-ups to a cadence. We would go, wah, 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 I want my milk and cookies. Wah, 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 I want to go home. And you would just do that all day. It was like they, if they sensed any kind of whininess in you, any childishness in you, it was time to do wah, wah, push-ups. And you would do them. Well, the thing that, that basic, so basic training in some ways did, did make me an adult but in a very narrow way, um, which can be misunderstood. So basic training does turn boys into men or or girls into women. It will do that, but it only does it in a very narrow way. The military is not interested in having a holistic man. They need something that in quick order they they can train who is physically fit, capable, and obedient to do what they're told, and so the kind of manhood that comes out of basic training or womanhood that comes out of basic training is very narrow in the way you under, one might understand it. You might find many soldiers uh, behave in a manly way but are very lacking in, in substantive issues that we should consider standard among adults. Well, I'm going to liken that to something I mentioned last week, which is one of the primary ways that we push our developing children in our culture, in this, our church culture, uh, I mean, not within church, but the culture that's present here, is one of the primary ways that we do give high expectations to our young people and expect them to find some kind of adulthood in it is academics. That is, uh, for the most part, the path to adulthood in our kind of society. We, a child, they grow up in middle school, they know they're a child, then they enter their adolescent teenage years in high school, and it is this period of 
uh, where there it's understood almost that they're expected to begin to pull away from the parents, and it's almost understood for the parents that it's expected to be difficult, and and they begin to kind of wrestle with it there because they're becoming an adult in the high school setting. We don't really think of adulthood outside of progressing through high school and then going to college and finding your adult self in college as though it's, you know, there in the bookstore. But the reality is, is so that will, high school and college will make an adult. It will make a narrow kind of adult. If you're not doing anything else, if you're just entrusting that the academic environment of, the Western, of Western America is going to breed an adult, it will breed something that looks and acts like an adult in a very narrow way, not in a holistic way. School is, after all, a protected environment. Just think about this for a second. School is not life. It's a protected environment. The student, particularly in college, is, is paying the university for services rendered. They are the object of the university. The universe, it's a student-centric environment. It's still all about the child. In this way, it's still very childish because the institution is still all about you rather than you incorporating yourself into a real world where things are really happening. The school is still very much kind of an insulated, preparatory kind of place. It's a place of assisted living. I... I wrote this down. I wrote down assisted living. And then I found myself thinking, you know, the elderly, when they have to trans, to move into assisted living, there's oftentimes shame or insult in that, that they're giving up their independence. For an 18 to 22-year-old, there is oftentimes shame and insult for not being on assisted living. And I found that interesting because which of those two categories is more capable of making a living? But it's because we've put them in an environment of assisted living. We've put them in this environment of dependency. We've put them in a, an environment that's centered around them. And because of it, you're going to get an adult, but you're going to get a very narrow kind of adult. In fact, this is happening. They have a term for it nowadays. Sociologists are calling this extended adolescence. There's a phrase for it, extended adolescence. And that is the case where young adults, vibrantly healthy adults with sharp minds, educated minds, skilled hands, um, all the kinds of skill sets you would expect to be an adult, they're graduating their, their collegiate environment and they are returning in many ways to adolescent behavior. They're going home. They remain toy-focused, self-focused. They go, I've been, I've been in school all this time. Now this time is about me. As though they've lived real life. They're entertainment-focused. They are comfortable with the idea of being on assisted living. That, that is an alarming response. Their parents' generation would have been uncomfortable with the idea of being on assisted living. There's an expectation of being cared for. There's a postponing of the adulthood of their parents. And what I mean to say is is they're not doing things. And there is. They've done studies. There is a statistically significant difference in age that the generation now is adopting the things that their parents adopted. So when, when, when... the, the 50s and 60-year-olds here, when you got married, there's a statistically difference, 
statistically significant difference in age is when people are getting married now. They're putting off marriage. They're putting off children. They're putting off careers. And they're saying, not quite yet. I still want to do things. I, there is kind of in a sort of way, I still want to be in the playroom. I'm not quite ready to come out. So all of this is to say that if the only way you're challenging your child is academically, you may be raising somebody who looks like an adult, but is, not, is still very immature as far as relationships go. And we're going to examine a little bit about how to, how to, how to what, a, what a more biblical way of raising, or the biblical order, maybe not a more biblical way, but the biblical order for raising children into adults. That's what we're going to look at this, this morning. And it's going to be very practical. Uh, here's the warning. Practical equals personal. So I already have two red words in my introduction because I know I've stepped on toes twice already. Um, that's just what's going to happen. When you kind of come out of theory towards practice, it's going to start having a very personal flair to it. So for that, I, I ask for grace. That's, that's what you get when you get a practical sermon. Also, practical, practical sermons necessitate some fashion of stereotyping. If we're going to go somewhere, we're going to say something, I'm going to assume certain basic, rather innocent stereotypes about the nuclear family. So if you're different, you may not be dysfunctional. You may not be. You might be. But I'm just saying, hey, I just want to say something in 25 minutes. And to do that, you've got to make some assumptions. And we call those assumption stereotypes. So that's number two. And number three is, is this is not, this is a challenge for me personality-wise. I can preach zingers the farther away I am from the practical world. So you're bubbling me to the surface. And so I ask for your grace. And you can scoot your toes under your seat a little bit, I guess. Also, practical for us often means in our minds a list of things to do. So when, we're getting, when we want a practical thing, what we want is, you know, take your wife on a date. Surprise her with roses. And we're writing these things. I can do that. I can do that. That's what practical means for us. That, that doesn't work. You, you need to know that does not work. Practical still needs to be principled. I'll show you how this doesn't work. You can get yourself in a lot of trouble if you reduce something that is significant to a list. Let me, let me show you how this can happen. Proverbial, well, here's some proverbial wisdom. Here's lists. A penny saved is a penny earned, right? You have to spend money to make money, right? Which one? Haste makes waste. Seize the day. Which one? Make hay while the sun shines, but make sure you stop and smell the roses. <sighs> Do you see the challenge here? I, we could just throw out all of these like lists. I could say to you, penny saved is a penny earned. Haste makes waste. Make hay while the sun shines. Give your child opportunities. Or I could say, give your child boundaries. Seize the day. Smell the roses. You have to spend money to make money. You can't just give lists if they're not infused with the principles behind the lists. We need, to be, we need to approach these things in a principled way. So to this morning, we're going to hit a few very practical, maybe listy kind of things. I ask that you do not miss the principles for the lists. Um, because I think you'll do yourself a disservice in the matter.
With that said, if you'll open your Bible to Deuteronomy 6, we're going to begin there. What we're going to do is if we believe, so we're going to start with this belief, that God, God wants His people to, create, to continue and preserve godly families. So that's our belief. Our belief is that God does want us to raise children to be good, adult, godly uh, people. That's the assumption. And with that, we're going to trust that if God wants that, that he's given us the wisdom through his scripture to pursue that. That it's in the Bible. And it's not in the Bible in some proverbial way, like where you have to kind of grab some proverb and blow it up. It's, it's actually in the Bible as far as given to us with a certain degree of clarity. It's not necessarily going to be the clarity you want, but I'm going to offer what I believe is the clarity scripture gives. And it begins here in Deuteronomy 6. This morning we're talking about the order or the hierarchy of relationship within the family. And it starts here. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, which will sound familiar to some of you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the first uh, order that we're going to talk about this morning, which is this. That God's authority, if so if you want to raise a child to be an adult, a healthy adult, then this has to be the case. God's authority has to be seen and visible within the household. God's authority has to be in the household. The ring of his authority, so kind of the perimeter of his rules, your house has to be inside of it. The things that happen in your house should be consistent with the rule of God. Which means you can't simply raise your children with godly principles and yet not live or act based upon those godly principles. Or another way of saying it is, is that biblical godly inconsistencies should really stand out. So you can't say to your son, watch your mouth. Don't say that. that that's a foul word. If you say that but you watch things on television that are full of foulness, the child will see that. If you have an expectation for your son and your daughter as far as sexual purity, but you allow things in your home and on TV that are absolutely in contradiction, it doesn't matter if it's a sitcom. Humor is, is the weapon of Satan. If you allow things that are in absolute contradiction to the very thing you're hoping and praying that your children will avoid, your children are smart enough to see the inconsistency and know that you really don't believe it. Your house has to be within the circle of God's authority. Here's some questions. Do you pray in front of your children I mean, you have the, do, they, do they ever see you pray? Or um, do, is there any way at all that they would connect you to God? 
Like, can, in their minds, just ask yourself, would my child know that I had a relationship with God? If not, that's a starting point. I mean, it, it all starts with God, right? That's always the right answer. But in this case, it's the right answer. Do you connect things to Scripture? In other words, when there's a conversation in the household, whether there's disagreement or just conversation, do you take the opportunity with your children to connect the principle to something that is scriptural or related to the Lord? In other words, they want to know, why can't I do that? So there's the question. Do you say, um, because it's not safe? Well, maybe it isn't safe. But it... Or do you say, well, because this is better, or this is more useful, or, I, you know, I did that, I learned a lesson as a, when I was younger, I just don't want you to do that. Now, all of those things may be the case. But have we avoided an opportunity, by the way, to say, you know what, the Lord has a vote here. We live in the house of God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the Lord has said... We don't do these kinds of things. Now, there are good reasons and healthy reasons and safe reasons, but those aren't the starting points, and they're not the ending points. They're just points. At some point, when you're talking with your children, do you connect what you're teaching to godly counsel, to the divine command of God? Because that is, by the way, the mandate of your authority as a parent. If you don't ever use Scripture, then even your authority position in the house comes under question. Because... From where else does it derive? When your children ask you, why these rules? How do you answer that? Listen, in Deuteronomy 6, he finishes the section this way. He says, look in verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the stipulations and decrees and laws the Lord your God has commanded you? You see what the child just asked? It says, in the future, when your son says to you, Dad, why do you do this stuff? It does, it's not like they're doing it. Why, why are we different? That's what the child's asking. This is what the Lord says to say. He says, tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miracles, miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. If we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. Do you see what's happening? The Lord is saying, you should live a life. You should live a life that's ordered by God in such a way that when your child says to you, why do you do this? You give them your testimony. That's what's happening here. That you say to your son or your daughter, well, we do these things because I was once a slave. I was trapped in unrighteousness. You do it in a humble way. You do it in a way that actually receives the command of the Lord as as life-giving good news. You say, God has saved me from so much. God's grace has covered so much. I've made mistakes in my life that God has blessed and come over and has redeemed in the beautiful things and I can share them. And I I follow after the Lord because our family loves God. We love God. And he has plans for us. And he's Lord of our life. And we desire that he has the first vote in everything we do. That's why we do what we do. 
Now we are entering, we are entering, we have entered an age where if your children are not taught in that fashion, they will let it go. Nothing, no one else is rooting for them. Humble, obedient, committed, sacrificial, spirit-filled parents. Your, your children can make their own decisions, but that's what God says. He says, let my authority rain down in the house. And that's your best strategy. We talked about, we talked about, this is a big chess game. Children are going to make their moves. Adults are going to make their moves. I don't know. I can't tell you the best strategy. I'm learning how to play. It's all happening, but this is it. The number one strategy the Lord offers is protect the king. Protect the king and you'll play a pretty good game. Make his word the word of the home. This is the big idea. Now that is the first order that I want you to see, is that God's authority is over the house. The child needs to see that. They need to see that their development is really in light of God, not just you, or it's not something that's based upon your own derived things that you think maybe ought to be, but that God has said things, and that there are consequences based upon that, that there's true authority. That's the first thing. Here's the second one. Turn to Colossians 3, verses 18. And what we're going to do is now is we're going to descend down into the family. So we see God is over the family. Now we're going to kind of crack the family open and look at the hierarchy of relationships within the family in a very, very... A cursory sort of way. Colossians 3, verse 18. And I'll read through 21. This is what is said. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, this is not unique to Colossians. There's, there's similar writings like this in Ephesians and in 1 Peter, all through the Old Testament. It's consistent across the... Uh, so Paul's not saying anything unique here. Nothing unique at all. What I want you to notice, though, is, is it first and foremost, is the primary relationship of the marriage within the family. That the marriage is the primary relationship of the adults in the family. In other words, when, 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 when Paul is teaching families how to be, why doesn't he start with fathers? Behave this way towards your children. Mothers. Why doesn't he start with fathers and mothers? Do you notice that? His concern is husbands and wives. In other words, we're not talking about is a person less, less valuable to God, but as far as relationships go, as the husband and the wife, your relationship, your horizontal relationship in the household is the single most important relationship. It's more important than your relationship with your children. It needs the attention. It needs the focus. You want to raise your sons or daughters into healthy adults? First, submit the household to God. Secondly, let them grow up in the shadow of a healthy marriage. Where the most important relationship in the home is the marital relationship, it has to come first. Your son's best lesson as to adult behavior will be, will be from his father's treatment 
of his wife. And your daughter's path to womanhood is going to be primarily paved through the image of marriage that you paint them. Your healthy marriage is teaching them to be adults. In some ways, that's relief, you know, because there's no special trick. In some ways, it's hard. In a lot more ways, it's hard, right? It's hard. Let me ask some questions, just some guiding questions to make you think. And, and um, you may be different and not dysfunctional, but you may be dysfunctional. Marital affection. Do your children ever see marital affection in your house? I don't mean you're making out with your husband on the couch. Don't do that around the kids. Do it when they're gone, but don't do it around the kids. What I mean is, is do they know that daddy loves mommy? Do they know that mommy loves daddy? Do you hold her hand sometimes? Or do you give her a hug? Or, or is there that obvious affection, the peck on the, on the cheek, or the kind of thing that, that the kids kind of, hmm, a little bit uncomfortable? That's okay. That's okay. They need to see that. They need to respond to, they need to know that daddy really loves mommy. And that mommy really loves daddy. I'll push this a little farther. The bedroom. What kind of space is that in your home? Your bedroom as husband and wife. Is that a space that's set apart? Does it paint the image of the unique quality of your spouse or doesn't it? I'll push it a little farther. Every morning at 2 a.m., is there a child between the two of you? Maybe it's different. Maybe. But what are you teaching the child? What are you teaching the child when there's no intimate space at all that's preserved for your husband or your wife? Chances are that interrupts real intimacy between you as husband and wife. Those things are seen and perceived even by small minds. In fact, these early minds are wonderful perceptors and terrible interpreters. So they're going to see those things very well, and they're not going to know what to do with them. And there's positive ways. There's positive ways, by the way, to deal with those things. Little Tommy wants to hop in in bed at 2 a.m. There's ways to say, you know what, Tommy? Uh, The bed is for Mommy and Daddy because Mommy is so important to Daddy. Mommy is Daddy's favorite person in the whole world. And God has told us to keep this as a very special place for Mommy and Daddy. And so, so that mommy always feels valued and loved and important to me, I say that the bed is just for mommy and daddy. You know what? If you're scared of the boogeyman, bring a sleeping bag and sleep on the floor. Like, kids can still do that. They, the floor doesn't like, hurt their neck or anything. But they can still do that. And I would say, encourage, I'm encouraging you to, to rethink of the small ways that, that the image, you may be pushing the image in dangerous directions. If a child's always between the parents in bed, there's a good chance that the child's between the parents. That is the most intimate space. Unity in the household. Does mom always back up dad? Does dad always back up mom? That's big. If in your household the dad's treated like a sitcom dad, you are messing with your child's adulthood. Likewise for the mother. If, if it's, ah, I don't listen to mom... You are destroying, you're warping your children's adulthood. 
Mom and dad have to be best friends. These are just questions for you. And challenges, maybe. Now, we confuse this issue, I think, because we often have so few children. We have so few children, by and large, especially compared to biblical standards, that they seem so much more important to us. They take kind of a primal role in the house because there's one or two. So do this in your mind. Exaggerate your reality. To imagine you have 15 children. You go home today. At the nursery, there's 15, all of them. You've got to get them all. Okay? You get them all. You take them home. You sit down. You, you make it to the evening. You put them all down to bed. And 2 a.m. shows up and six of them want to climb in bed with you. No. Right? It's, you beat them back. Get back, right? But if you had 15 children, what is the one relationship in the household you would work on? Your spouse. Your spouse. You can't give all of yourself to 16 people. The Lord is saying, husbands, love your wives. Wives, love and submit to your husbands. Work on that. Focus on that. Paint that picture. Show it to the children as something they graduate into as adults rather than giving them pieces of it in weird sorts of distorted ways while they're children, and then they don't understand what are they graduating into. They don't understand, I don't have it now, but when I'm a man, I get it. I don't have it now, but when I'm a girl, when I become a woman, some man will bring it to me. We're confusing these things. By the way, we misalign our relationships. That's the second one. Here's the third one. The child is subordinate to the adult. So God is over the house, number one. Number two, husbands and wives, the marital relationship is the fundamental building block of your child's adulthood. Work on your marriage, and that is the image that will develop your adults. Number three, the child is subordinate to the adult. I'm not saying they're less important, they're not made in the image of God. I'm saying the relationship is a subordinate relationship. You're in covenant with your spouse You're a custodian over your child. The purpose of a parent is to raise them so they leave. Right? That's the success, is is to raise it to his leave. Imagine a painter who paints all his artwork but can't ever let it go. Doesn't want anyone to see it. That's tragic. And yet we, we, we raise children this way. We raise them as though they're not intended to go off and become something. That is a successful mission for them to leave. I'm not saying it's easy. I love my children. You love your children. But that, we have to keep the mission in mind. You are responsible for your child, which means you're responsible to discipline the child. The path to adulthood is one that is carved through discipline. You are over the child, in a position of authority of the child. Not by what the state's decreed, but what God has said. God has told you, you are over the child, discipline the child. He didn't just say it once, he says it hundreds of times. This means you have to mark development in your child. As they grow, you have to ask yourself, what are they capable of? then you have to begin to set high expectations, and then you have to be willing and able to dole out consequences in a Christian way that that keep the child pinned in. Because God has says you are supposed to discipline them. So let me ask a few questions here. Parent, do you find that you advocate for your children in all of his various settings, particularly those where it's 
adults are related. In other words, if he gets an F on a quiz because he can't spell abracadabra, do you call the teacher? You realize I mean, school is really just a laboratory. Let him fail the quiz. But do you always find that you're advocate, advocating for your child as though they are some adults who can't fight for themselves, as though they, they have these rights? Or are you in some ways honoring the general quality of adults, saying, well, your, teacher's, your teacher is an adult. Let's honor his authority. They, yeah, that, that's, that's what that teacher does. He spends all day teaching his back off. Or do you constantly rush to the aid of your child? That's the first thing that kind of calls this whole subordinate position. It actually seems like you're pushing your child above you, that you're subordinate to them. Number two, do you excuse excuse me, your child's misbehavior in various adult settings? So you're trying to visit with an adult, and around you, like Dover Downs, it's... Dad! 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 Do you, do, you, do you excuse that, oh, he's just an energetic child? Or, you know, he didn't have his nap. Or this or that. I'm asking, or do you say, I'm sorry, Dad's having a conversation with another adult. You need to be quiet. Now, that sounds tragic. That is putting the child in his place, which says to the child, I am a child, not an adult. One day I will be an adult, but I am not an adult. Some of us don't do that, and then the child begins to think, I get everything that an adult gets, except I don't have to act like an adult, which is the recipe for extended adolescence. Do you make the goal of your life to give your child every opportunity? This is a suburban question. I just want to give my kids every opportunity I can. Is that the goal? Why is that the goal? If you were broke, if you had no money, could you do that? And if not, then do you think God would give us a recipe for raising our children that was available only to the wealthy? Giving our children every opportunity is not the goal. That elevates them above us. Giving them righteous opportunity, that's a goal. Giving them some opportunity, that's a goal. We're called the discipline. And number four, do you refuse to administer harsh discipline? I didn't want to write harsh, but I figured y'all would miss it if I didn't say it. Yes, harsh discipline. Meaning, well, I'll just read. Hear the word of the Lord. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, now this is the worst case scenario, okay? So I'm starting with a humdinger that'll bother you on the way home. Hear the word of the Lord. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline... Children, listen to this. Will not listen when they discipline him. His father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of the town shall give him a timeout. No. They shall stone him to death. You must purge evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Now, I'm saying it. It says all Israel will hear it and be afraid because it's a big teaching. Nobody would think to do that. God's saying the behavior of your child matters as as a culture. When we raise a culture where children can do whatever they want, 
That is a recipe for cultural disaster. And God says, nip it in the bud. Proverbs 3.12, Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father, the son he delights in. 6.23, The corrections of discipline are the way of life. 10.17, He who heeds discipline shows the way to life. Whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Proverbs 13.1, A wise son heeds his father's instruction. But a mocker does not listen to rebuke. 13.24, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. 15.5, A fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. 15.10, Stern disciplines awaits him who leaves the path. He who hates correction will die. 15.32, He who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever heeds correction gains understanding. 19.18, I'm skipping. I'm like every other one right now. Discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. 22.15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Proverbs 23.13. Do not withhold discipline from, from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. 29.15. The rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. 29.17 Discipline your son and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. Hebrews 12 And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. This is the point. And he punishes everyone who he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. You see, if you don't do this for your children, they will not understand it from God. They will not understand it. We are preaching a prosperity gospel to our children. Not godly gospel. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained for it. I've gone long, I know, and um, maybe I blew it up again for you. This was not intended to be a long sermon series, so we could keep going. What I will say is this, the word gives direction. Be godly and humble and compassionate. When you discipline, don't discipline in anger, discipline in love. I'll say this, some of you may be here going, I've made a lot of mistakes, how do I pick up the pieces? I would say that's God's job. It's God's job, it's the power of his spirit working through you. It's when we submit to the Lord, some of you may need to confess to your children, in your own way, in the own balanced way, you and, you and your spouse may need to sit down with the child and say, you know what, we have spoiled you rotten. It's been a grievous sin on our part. It's for this we, we confess to you and to God, and it's going to change. Maybe some of you need to say, our house has not been under the authority of God. Only in name, but not in essence. And for that, we are grievous. And so there's a lot of things you can't do, but I'll say this. I'm going to work to model that for you. So there's a lot of things that I won't do. Because we believe that God has the way to life. Do we believe what the word says? I believe that God desires his people would persevere. 
would preserve themselves through family. And I believe he's given us the direction for that. And I think it's through the hierarchy of God and the family.